0: Well, we are in our last week of a series kind of hopscotching, if you will, through the Psalms. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up Uh, somewhere in the Psalms. We'll land all over the place, actually. Uh, Maybe Psalm 137 would be a place to start. Uh, And as I've mentioned, we've been here for about six weeks. We've been looking at the different types or categories of Psalms. Uh, in this series. And I hope that, that you've noticed over the, the, the weeks, or if you're familiar with this, this Jewish hymn book that we now have as well, uh, that you've uh, just been able to dig in a bit and, and see that, that there's so much language for us here to connect with God and to, to learn how to pray and communicate with Him. And so the big idea, the whole reason we were spending these six weeks here was to look at these different types or different categories of Psalms, and, and look at what they meant, first in the original context, because you can't take Bible without context. So see what they, they meant for uh, the ancient people of Israel, for the Jewish people as their hymn book, but as well consider what we can learn from them today, and how they can serve our worship, and give us, as, again, words to pray as well as we connect with God. We wanted maybe especially through these past six weeks or so to think about uh, how we can get language to talk to God from the Psalms. Uh, we hope to see that, that these 150 chapters in the book of Psalms give us uh, all kinds of different language. They, they span and speak from all ends of the human experience and human emotions. And we wanted to dig in again so that we can use the Psalms in our individual prayer lives, but also as the church to pray these things to God. And hopefully what we've seen, and if you're just joining us for the first week, you're just visiting, that as you walk through the Psalms, as you have in the past, and you do going forward, uh, you'll see that, that we can come to God and bring everything. God doesn't ask us to get our lives tidied up before we come to Him. He doesn't ask us to put on the brave face before we pray and communicate with Him. But God wants us to bring all of our hopes, but also our fears and even our angers and our praise to Him. We said a few weeks ago that the church isn't supposed to be the happiest place on earth. That's for Disneyland to try and sort out. But we're supposed to be the most honest place on earth so that we can come in our brokenness, in our not sure what to do and come to God in that way. Uh, just by, this is maybe a, not a bait and switch, but just actually by walking through the door, you have already admitted that you don't have life altogether. Did you know that? Because when you come to the door in the church, you're saying, well, these people, they're talking about something else. They're talking about God. They're talking about Jesus as, as maybe something I need in my life. So welcome to brokenness and needing something beyond yourself. And hopefully we see that in the Psalms, that that's how God wants us to approach Him. Honestly, unfiltered, because He's big enough. Just a really quick recap of... The Psalms that we've looked through, the categories of Psalms we looked through, we started with the Wisdom Psalms and really sort of keyed in on the first Psalm, Psalm 1. And we saw how how the Wisdom Psalms, they kind of reflect the, the Beatitudes of, of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount of telling us how to have this blessed life, a, a meaningful life, one with uh, value and purpose and and worth and stuff. And they teach us how to to meditate or dwell on God's Word. They point us to this blessed life that we can live the lives we were created to live in the presence of and in relationship with God. And we learned there as well that we can come to God in prayer no matter what else is going on in our hearts and our lives. Second, we looked at the hymns or the psalms of praise. And this is a group of 30 or so psalms that typically all start with some sort of a a call to worship praise the Lord, praise his name, something like that. And then they go on to give us reasons, like tangible things you can hold and put on the shelf, reasons for why we should praise God. They remind us of who God is and what he's done. They give us this this bank of, of of reasons that God is good, so that when hard times come, we can remember that. Oh, but no, God is good. He's taught us this. God is gracious. He's compassionate. He's rescued us before. He'll rescue us again. We said that when we worship God, we can use these Psalms to help us adjust our perspective, to remind us that God is God and we are not, that His ways are His ways and our ways are not, and that we can have that that awe and reverence of God from these Psalms. The next week, we kind of went the exact opposite direction, and we hit the emotional bottom of the Psalms of Lament. And there are 60 or so of these Psalms. Now, I'm not great at math, but 60 of 150 is a significant percentage. Which is very comforting to me that, that the bulk of this book on how to relate and how to pray to God is these times where the, the writers cry out, God, where are you? How have you forsaken me? It seems like you're far from me. Something's broken in my soul, God. How do we deal with this? These Psalms, are they're emotionally taxing, and draining on us. And these authors give us words to express how we feel when we feel brokenness in our lives or see brokenness around us. They give us words to use when it feels like God is far away, or doesn't care, or isn't listening or helping, or maybe can't. Maybe he's not strong enough to help. But we, we've got these Psalms that we can bring and pray to God. And from these laments, we learn that, again, God wants us to come. It doesn't matter how we're feeling. It doesn't matter if we we feel like saying, oh, praise Him. We can come and just say, God, why have you left me alone? And He's good with that. He can handle it. God wants our unfiltered and unedited emotions. And that's good news. Next, we consider the Thanksgiving Psalms, and Steve did a great job reminding us that in every situation, sometimes it takes a little more digging than others, but there is something to be thankful for. We can read through these Thanksgiving Psalms and and see that the, the chapters, these Psalms remind us of what God has already done. And so if God is unchanging and He's done this in the past, or He is like this in the past, He will do this and will be like this today and going forward too. And we are encouraged to to choose that attitude of gratitude for what God has already done so that we can find it in the present and the future as well. Then last time we were here in the Psalms, we looked at the Royal Psalms. And within these Royal Psalms, this subcategory of the Messianic Psalms, And these are ones that that point us to Jesus prophetically. They speak maybe originally of Israel's king. They're they're celebrations of maybe at a a coronation of a king or or the wedding of one of Israel's kings. Uh, But they also point us to, to God as king of Israel, but ultimately to Jesus as the promised king, the promised foretold Messiah. And so we can use these Psalms as well to remind us of God's sovereignty, that He is in control to remind us of his rule and his reign and how his promises come true. And we can also use these psalms that point us to Jesus to then look at Jesus' life and see uh, from his example how often he quoted the psalms. And so we can follow Jesus' example, which is always a good idea, by the way, but use these psalms and ultimately all of the Bible to connect with God in any situation, good, bad, in praise, in anguish, wherever we are. This week we, wrapped up, we are wrapping up with the imprecatory psalms or the cursing psalms or maybe a nice sort of tidier, cleaner way to say it is the justice psalms. And so ultimately the, the big idea for this category is that the psalms call for justice over evil. Now, there's about 20 or so that can slip in and out of this category. As we've noticed walking through, some psalms fit in one or two categories, depending on what the author's talking about. But a couple of these ones that we'll touch on at least briefly this morning are Psalm 58 and 69 and 109 and 137. Now, in some ways, this is a hard way to wrap up the service. These are the the series. Uh, These psalms are kind of hard to handle at times. Let me explain. We've just spent five weeks walking through many of the Psalms saying that they help us when we need words to pray to God, when we, when we struggle to have the words to give God our emotions, and these Psalms are also great expressions and, and passionate praise. Yet now we come to these justice Psalms that are kind of a subcategory of the lament Psalms that call for God's justice to be done, often in a violent way. Consider some of the following Psalm 5, verse 10. The psalmist writes, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall down by their own counsels. Because of their abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. Psalm 35, 4-8. to Let them be put to shame and dishonor those who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed those who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. So let destruction come upon him when he doesn't know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him, let him fall into it to his destruction. Psalm 79 verse 6, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that don't call on your name. Psalm 137 is one that that is written around the time of the exile to Babylon, and it wraps up with these uh, happy words. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against a rock. We saw a piece of this uh, this justice song come out of a lament earlier when it said, Let his wife be a widow and his children be fatherless. These are not kind things. These are not words that we would often say to one another. But we need to wrestle with this because uh, one of the things we want to recognize is that they're in the Bible. Okay, so if you... Uh, I want the first time, if you haven't found these already... The first time, especially kids, you hear words like this in the Bible to come from either at home with your parents or in the church or in youth group. Not when you go to school and someone says, look at this, how can you possibly follow this God? So we've got to deal with this. We want to be a place where these questions are welcomed and we're going to wrestle through them. These words make us feel uncomfortable and I think they should. But... We know that Jesus taught us, and this is why it makes us feel uncomfortable, because we know that Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, and to pray for those who abuse you. And then Jesus prayed for his enemies on the cross, hanging from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And so we've got these psalms that have this horrible, violent language. We've got Jesus... Dying on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. And they seem like polar opposites. So, how do we reconcile that? One uh, pastor wrote Many people believe that these prayers, if you can even legitimately call them prayers, are beneath the dignity of the Christian and are not to be viewed as examples for us to follow but rather they're expressions of man's sinful desire for vengeance on his enemies. And so these psalms, some have said, are not God's precepts, but rather man's defective prayers. They're cold-blooded expressions of malignant cruelty and must never be regarded as inspired by God. And that sounds like, okay, that, maybe that's a good way to deal with these. Let's just pretend they're not there. Let's sweep them under the rug. But there's a problem with doing that, isn't there? What does uh, Paul teach us in 2 Timothy 3.16? He says, how much of Scripture is profitable for teaching? The easy to deal with parts? All Scripture. Okay, so Paul would have been talking about this when he taught that. So the Psalms are in our Bible. They're here for a reason. We can't just dismiss them. We also can't just throw them away and dismiss them and say, while they're only found in the Old Testament, they didn't have Jesus yet, Jesus hadn't told them to love your enemies yet. So there's a, some sort of underdeveloped or some standard morality that was, that's now inappropriate because we're now in the New Testament era. But both the New and Old Testament present to us the same standard of living. And God's moral law is like Him. It's unchanging. And so we can't just set up Scripture as though it's in conflict with itself. And maybe even a bigger problem is that we find some of these similar imprecations or calls for justice on the enemies of God in the New Testament. Consider Galatians 1.8. Paul writes, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians sixteen, twenty-one, and 22, Paul wrapping up this letter to the church at Corinth says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Revelation 6, verse 10, uh, John records for us that, that they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, will you, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And if we really think about it, when we pray like Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're asking God to set up His ways, His kingdom, over top of the other ways and kingdoms of this world. So there's, there's a judgment right there that we're asking for. Jesus, as I mentioned, quotes the Psalms often, and He quotes from these as well. Luke 10, verse 10 to 16. He's getting ready to send his disciples out on uh, one of their missionary journeys, and he says to them, Whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than that town. And Jesus continues in verse 13 and says, Woe to you, Cors, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. In verse 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Later in Matthew 26, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41 as well as he's sitting around with his disciples at the Last Supper. And Jesus says, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes and is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Peter as well cites and, and quotes Psalm 69 and 109 talking about Judas in Acts chapter 1. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms. Let his homestead be made desolate. Let no man dwell in it. And let another take his office. So we can't throw these out as being just Old Testament ideas. We can't throw them out and say, well, Jesus never would have taught that because he did. So what do we do with these? A handful of thoughts for the rest of our time. First and maybe... uh, I'm going to wind up saying most importantly a few times, but uh, first and quite importantly... We need to remember that this type of psalm isn't all of the psalms, but it's a fraction of the psalms, and so we need to be careful not to overemphasize this category. And so, even though we don't want to overestimate or overemphasize it, we also don't want to just read these psalms as, as was some have said, emotionally uncontrolled outbursts by otherwise sane and compassionate people. Remember, this is Scripture. These letters, these aren't just things that David was hungry and grumpy one day and being chased around the countryside, and so he penned this letter and we found it, and now we have it, and it's in our Bibles. These are high poetry. These are Psalms that have been uh, reasoned and, and meditated on and are divinely inspired Again, it's not just David's bad temper, but these are expressions of public worship that in some way, shape, or form, we need to wrestle with to learn how to model them as well. Second, it's important for us to remember that if we flipped back earlier in our Bibles to Deuteronomy 27 and 26, the the Levites there, the, the priestly group of the people of Israel, also pronounced these same type of judgments against Israel if they go and break their deal with God, their covenant with God. And the people were good with that. Basically, the people said, let us be judged, let us be cursed if we disobey this God. And God responded with favor to that. And so as one writer says, God's people were commanded to pray for God's curses upon themselves if they forsook Him. And so we must never think that God is any less severe on His own covenant people than He is on the unbelieving nations who are regularly given to idolatry. The third thing we can learn and kind of how we adapt and understand these Psalms is recognize that that most of these were written by David who was maybe one of the least vengeful people in the Old Testament. If we read through his story, we find time and time again where David could have taken justice into his own hands, but didn't. So David, even in writing these, never asked that he'd be allowed to get even with anyone. But rather, his prayer is that God would act justly. One writer says, there's a vast difference between vindication and vindictiveness. David's passion was for the triumph of divine justice, not the satisfaction of his own personal malice. And the Old Testament was much opposed to seeking personal vengeance against one's enemies as the New Testament is. Next too, we need to actually remember that these justice psalms aren't anything more than human prayers based on divine promises. Often they're just asking God to do what he said he would do. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus declares that that on the day of judgment, he'll say to the hypocrites, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so is it wrong for us to pray that Jesus would do what he said he will do? Is it wrong for us to build prayer on a promise? Next, uh, we need to realize that these psalms are expressions as well that are provoked by the horror of sin. Again, King David wrote most of these and he prayed the way he did because he was uh, surrounded by and aware of and deeply sensitive to the ugliness of sin. And so whenever we see evil and sin in our world, we too can pray for God's justice, for his kingdom and his rule to come. Out of that as well, the motivation for these psalms is not just, again, personal vendettas or whatever, but these, uh, the motivation is a zeal or a passion for God's righteousness, for His honor, for His reputation, and for a longing for His kingdom. One commentator asks these questions that sometimes we get asked questions that are hard to deal with. But he says, Is our willingness to ignore blasphemy and overlook evil due to a deficiency of our love for God and His name? That's an interesting question. Are we more comfortable with people saying bad things about who God is and what He's done because we're more worried about what the people are saying about us? He says, could our reaction to these imprecatory psalms be traced to the fact that we love men in their favor more than we love God and His? Ouch. Ouch. We also need to remember when we come to these Psalms that when David was the king, again, he wrote most of these, so that's why I sort of keep coming back to him. He was God's appointed king on earth. He was the anointed one to lead God's people. And therefore, an an attack on David or his kingdom was an attack on God, God's kingdom. And so, David's enemies weren't just his private opponents, people he didn't get along with, but rather they were the adversaries of God. And so, we understand how his uh, rage bubbles up in, for instance, Psalm 139, because, as he says, God, these people are speaking out against you. They're malicious. They have malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Don't I hate those who hate you, O Lord? And don't I loathe those who rise up against you? This is, a, this is a, speaking against the enemies of God. Uh, next, these prayers, these sort of justice psalms are rarely, if ever, against a, a specific individual, but rather always against a, a group that, that are named as the wicked or those who oppose God. Out of that, it's important for us to remember that, as Sam Storms says, we have to keep in mind that in most instances... These prayers for divine judgment come only after an extended effort on the part of the psalmist to call the enemies of God to repentance. We don't come to these and just say, I see an enemy over there, God hears a psalm, smite them, send your lightning bolts, whatever else. The goal is always first and foremost, repentance. These psalms aren't just cases, storms continues of a momentary resistance to God, but of unrepentant, incessant, hardened, and haughty defiance of Him. In other words, the psalmist calls for divine judgment against them so long as they persist in their rebellion. Now, we love our enemies by praying for their repentance, but if they callously and consistently refuse, then our only recourse is to pray that God's judgment will be full and fair. And it's important to remember that there often comes a time in our human sin when God withdraws His merciful hand and gives our hearts over to its desires. And Paul talks about this in Romans 1. We looked at that last weekend. Jesus even warns against this pattern of sin that's so persistent and so calloused in Matthew chapter 12 that He declared it unforgivable. Next, as we uh, head closer towards wrapping up, We need to remember too that David knows that he needs his own spiritual protection lest he starts to hate God's enemies for personal reasons. There's that tension of we want to love our enemies, right? But hate what they say about God. Which makes it really interesting how he concludes Psalm 139 with a prayer that God would purify his own motives and protect his heart. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous or sinful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So when David is speaking of of hatred for those who oppose God's kingdom, he's not acting his own kind of personal maliciousness or he's not bitter or vindictive or motivated by his own self-centered resentment. But he is jealous for God's name and firmly at odds with those who would blaspheme it. Ultimately, we too need to remember that we are a sinful and broken people living in a sinful and broken world. And we need to remember Paul's distinction in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. People aren't the enemy, but the enemy is the enemy. Paul says our our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And so when we see injustice and evil in our world, we recognize that the real enemy isn't a person or a people or a group of people or whatever, but that there is a spiritual enemy. And it's right for us to pray for God's justice to come and to to long for the day when God's enemy, the devil, is defeated once and for all. We would also do really well to remember that apart from Jesus' work on the cross, we too would be counted among those who oppose God, who these psalms are speaking against. One writer looking at Psalm 53, or 58, excuse me, says, Psalm 58, 3 to 5, describes the wicked. There's evil in them from birth. They're always lying, and they refuse correction. Huh, he says. That sounds a little bit familiar. If I'm honest, I don't think the point of this psalm is to expound on the sinfulness of all humanity, but it's an important sort of side lesson that I am evil from birth. I am always lying. I refuse correction, but God. We come to the good news of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And, we've been, and he raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. and This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God so that not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand and we should walk in them. Whenever we come to these justice, judgment psalms, we need to ourselves be confronted by the gospel. Without Jesus' work, we are just as wrong, rebellious as them, the people the psalms sing to. And finally, These psalms are lessons for us in forgiveness. Sometimes God's justice works out differently than we think it should, than David thinks it should. But that, but God, makes a massive difference. And sometimes grace and mercy will even overwhelm our enemies, which makes it really interesting when all of a sudden, people we once fought with are now welcomed into the fold, welcomed into the family of God. What a display of the gospel. We can praise God that he does forgive us. Praise God that he forgives anyone who comes to him. Praise God that sometimes his justice is different than we want. Praise God that Jesus took all of God's wrath from every one of us. And praise God that he welcomes sinners because that's all of us. Let me pray to wrap up our time and this series. God, we thank you. Uh, for this time that we can spend in your word. We thank you for the treasure that is the Psalms. And I pray that you would uh, give us a hunger and desire to go deeper, to to make the Psalms a a regular part of our relationship with you, whether that's uh, reading a handful or reading a couple or sitting and and soaking in the truths of them. I pray, God, that you would uh, draw us, give us a hunger and thirst for your word, and, and maybe the Psalms especially as we come out of this series. God, show us how they help us to speak. Uh, Show us how they give us words to say. Show us how they point us to our own brokenness and our own need for Jesus. Jesus, thank you uh, for your word and your work. Thank you that the Psalms point to you and and point to the time where you would come and be our our once-for-all final sacrifice, the final payment for sin. Thank you that because of your work on the cross, we are made righteous. We are made holy as we submit to you. And we look forward to the day where where we uh, usher in your kingdom finally and fully. And we get to live in the presence of the Lord forever. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.